Hello and welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast with me, Matt Fallays. Last year ended with one political drama after another. The reorganisation of secondary and further education defunded, big tax rises thrown out again, the senior committee policy and resources removed in a vote of no confidence, and eventually Deputy Lyndon Trotz returned to the top job after a 12-year break. After a brief pause over the festive period... Politics and the Guernsey Press Politics podcast is back this week with the first states meeting of 2024. The issues don't change much, though. The big debates in the Assembly this week are likely to be around the future of secondary and further education and how we elect our deputies in 2025 and beyond. I spoke to Deputy Gavin St-Pierre about the state of local politics, his idea of rolling island-wide elections and what could be achieved and what could still be left hanging by the latest proposals on education. Welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. Deputy St-Pierre, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. I want to start by talking about, so it's a new year, it's a new policy and resources committee. It's in some ways a new start for this slightly beleaguered state, isn't it? I mean, is that how it feels on the inside? Well, I think it's probably a little bit early to say because, of course, the states hasn't actually come together as a group since um, since the change in um, in mid-December. So we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I think the reality is, of course, uh, in a sense, it's really only two-fifths a new um, PNR because obviously Deputy Salisbury returns and two of the um, uh, former committee were returned. So... Um, to what extent it's, it's really a, a substant- substantive and substantial change of the composition of that committee, I think only time uh, will tell. But I think it will be very different in terms of of its tone, um, and, and that's inevitable with a with a different uh, with a different leader, because that is the nature of um, the committee and the nature of the the presidency of that particular committee. So a new president, as, as you um, say, Deputy Lyndon Trott, who, who is someone who you have been quite close to in, in recent years. He was your vice president when you um, led policy and resources in the last term, of course. And you stood alongside him at the uh, 2020 general election. I mean, is it fair to say that, that you you are happier personally when, when you, know, you haven't had a chance yet properly to kind of sit in the well of the chamber and, and experience the, the new PNR. But are you happier now with the new look leadership than you were last year? I, I mean, I, I think I've said, in, in fact, I think I said in the Guernsey Press that in, in my view, um, the, the motion of no confidence with that coming forward and, and with the demise of uh, of the old committee, Deputy Trot was the inevitable Choice for the committee uh, for the assembly in, in choosing a successor. I think in terms of a an experienced um, politician who is, is in his has made it clear he is in his final term, um, seeking to stabilise a pretty unhappy ship for the remaining eighteen months of its term. It, it, to me, there was no other uh, choice. So yes, I think uh, uh, personally, I think it was the right decision uh, for the states to make. Uh, and I think it will, as I said, will lead to a change in tone, which is which is important. And I think that uh, we'll obviously have to see how that plays out policy by policy, recognising that we do only have 
actually probably realistically only a little over 12 months before we're into the final stretch of the mad rush of policy letters before the end of term. So it's not a great deal of time to see a substantial change in policy direction, but I think it is enough time to provide some stability um, and, and perhaps to, to help inject some an air of, of optimism and confidence which uh, I think was perhaps lacking from a committee that had consciously decided to present um, an air, if you like, of austerity uh, in order to try and drive the tax agenda that they um, that they felt, in their view, was necessary. And, and I don't think we'll see that from the new committee. You were a fairly consistent critic of the um, former Policy and Resources Committee. I mean, you, you said when you weren't... Uh, elected to committees after the general election that you would play a scrutineer role and and you have but looking back on on the 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 previous three years then i mean do you not think that too much energy has been spent kind of kicking lumps out of the former policy and resources committee possibly with a view to the day when they would eventually become so weak the states would remove them i mean do, do you not think that has been a theme of the past three years, which which could have been avoided, but from where, from which, from which direction? I mean, I think they, I think they are largely. I think the reality is they're largely the product. Their demise is a, a product of their own uh, conduct and behaviour, rather than what others have said and observed about them. Because they feel there has been a fairly organised kind of concerted campaign, almost from day one, don't they? Uh, and that okay, opportunities have been taken when they've perhaps made errors. Um, to capitalise on those areas, but but do you do you not sense that that was the case at all? No. Well, if there's been any organised campaign, I, I certainly don't don't know where it's come from, and I've not been part of that. It's not as if there's been a little cabal working away together in the organised sense that you suggest. I mean, certainly, as you've said, in relation to my own role, I, I, I took the decision that I had been elected. Um, by the people of the island. Um, therefore, I had a responsibility to do something for the next four years. And if the assembly didn't want to have me doing anything, then the only role I could really have was was creating my own on the back benches. Now, unfortunately, and I, I would say that it, it, those um, in the leadership of, of policy and resources regarded any question, any challenge, any amendment as as being a form of opposition. And of course, it isn't. Um, in, in democratic politics, um, scrutinising, questioning, seeking to hold to account is part of the process. It does not mean that you cannot um, agree with individuals on uh, policy by policy or uh, or that you, you know, in some way you um, dislike them as individuals or any of that. It's, that's just not the reality. And I think the you know, for me, probably one of the regrets is of, of the last few years is is this sort of the narrative has been very easy to play that there's some kind of deputy St. Pierre, deputy Fairbrush sort of psychodrama playing out week by week, month by month. And I, I, I simply don't recognise that. I mean, Peter and I have always had a perfectly uh, civil uh, relationship every time we've ever met Um before, during, and during, uh, before his presidency, during his presidency, and after his presidency, and I'm sure that will continue. So I think there's there's nothing sort of fundamentally uh, from from my side that I recognise that's ever driven that. But I do recognise that that any uh, question or challenge 
was seen and presented as opposition, partly because that's a sort of easy way to avoid perhaps answering the question, um, is, is to, to sort of seek to undermine the, the, the question and the person asking it and the motives of the person asking it. But I would simply say from my perspective, you look at my record. I mean, I've questioned every committee, uh, whoever's the, the president of it. I've had questions of them written and oral and, and amendments as well. So um, yeah, that's the role I've... I've there has, though, been a sense of, of tribalism, hasn't there? I mean, almost everybody I speak to in or connected to the state, other than those who were either on or extremely loyal to the former Policy and Resources Committee, say, yes, there, there is more tribalism in this state than there has been previously. I mean, c taking us back to the to the days which followed the 2020 general election, when you and Deputy Furbrush once again were going head to head, as it were, uh, for election as, as president of PNR, where did that come from, that, that kind of tribalism? Because within the first few weeks um, of the new assembly, it was evident, wasn't it? I mean, can you give us a kind of summary of where you think that came from? No, I, I genuinely, I, genuinely, I can't actually really put my finger on it. And again, again, this has come up in the states. I think, in fact, during the motion of no confidence, this description of of you know of the two tribes um, uh, and and two, uh, and uh, I'd say I'm I'm not clear where they are. You know where where all those individuals are. So no, I mean, I, in in a sense, it's it, it's now history. Um, you know, I think the, the states has moved on. Um, I think it has been an unfortunate uh, period of sort of stasis for three years, and I think that for me has been the frustration, has been the lack of of progress, and I think the depart. You know, there's been such a strong um, difference between the 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 narrative of of action this day and and the delivery, which really just frankly hasn't hasn't been there. And and I think some of that was. It was just extraordinary naivety by by some of those who were elected, who who really did think that, that and I think they probably genuinely believed that they were in a position to um, to secure very rapid change in in certain policy or certain areas. But the 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 shame is is that we were in such a strong position. Uh, post-COVID, including financially, actually. And of course, relatively, we still remain in a very strong position relative to most jurisdictions around us. And yet we've managed to sort of talk ourselves down. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate. I think we the, the lack of any vision or, or uh, ambition or um, strategy, you can, do, you can give it whatever word you like, but without knowing the destination that we we're aiming for, I'm afraid the government was always going to drift because that's what governments do. Unless they know where they're headed, they will simply end up as the, the force of events that happen day to day. They'll be pushed from pillar to post and reacting to things that come in. And, and that, in essence, is, is how the last three and a half years have played out. And I think that's unfortunate and it is, is a result of um, you know, perhaps the misplaced expectations of some of those who were elected to senior positions at the outset. Uh, in a moment, I want to come on to this week's states meeting, and, and you have a, a particularly interesting amendment about general elections at that meeting. But but finally, on this point about where the states is generally, you stood for a seat on, on Deputy Trott's new Policy and Resources Committee. You weren't that far away, but you, you didn't manage to secure a seat. I mean, what what 
do you put that down to? I mean, you you stood as pre- president of PNR, you stood as president of the States Trading Supervisory Board. You know, you have contested seats, senior seats, as and when they have become available. But you can't get over the line, can you, in in this states to 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 secure senior seats? And a lot of people will look at that and say, you know, hold on, this is someone who's very experienced, and uh, you know, came first at the last general election. It will appear, t- um, uh, it, it, w- it won't be easily explainable to a lot of people. But there is something about your relationship and you and your relationship with this states that has prevented you uh not allowed you to 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 get those senior seats what 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 do you think is going on there yeah it's a very good question and again i'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask i mean i think you probably need to ask all the people around me um why that why that is the case um i mean i've taken the view that that the states at the outset didn't want me in a role um therefore I, i would put myself up for for positions as they came available and give the opportunity for the states to make a decision case by case and that's what they are you quite relaxed about it or or has it polluted your experience of politics over the last three years no i mean the the last three years i think i clearly didn't go into the 2020 election spend expecting to spend the next four years um carving out a role for myself as as uh, as a backbencher um, seeking to find questions to ask and matters to scrutinise. That, that's not why I stood for election. So, but having said that, I think it's it, it, it's been a very interesting and, and revealing perspective for me, um, having gone straight into a senior role in 2012 um, when I was elected for the first time and went in as Treasury Minister and then as Chief Minister, um, having had no other... Uh, viewpoint other than as a, if you like, part of the senior decision-making team, political team of the states, to actually uh, stand in a completely different... Uh, it's like looking through the other end of a telescope. It's a, it's, a, it's like looking through a, a different prism. And I think that is has been quite a revelation. And um, if I choose to, to go on uh, and, and seek re-election in 2025, and, and it's still a little early to make that decision... But if I do, it will be with the benefit of a very different perspective and experience, which um, I think will, will have been interesting and useful. Do you wish you had done that in your first four-year term? You've got, gone and not been elected to a senior office, but but just sat as a backbencher for want of a better term. Do, do you think that that would have helped you in in the the your you know the rest of your time in politics? Uh, it, it, that's a very difficult question to answer. Honestly, because it's it's just you're sort of having to re in that reimagine history. What I will say is that before I stood for election, I was counselled not to seek a senior position, and that I should, um, if you like, seek to learn the ropes and and have a a um, more lower key approach and entry into politics. And frankly, I ignored that advice. And I think there was a um, again, I've, I've I've spoken about this. And commented about this before publicly, and I, th- I think um, I made mistakes as a result. Um, and I think there is an element of hubris that comes, uh, particularly when you've done successfully in the election, uh, and thinking you're anxious to get going. You think you've got the answers, but your the, the lack of understanding how different government is um, in terms of its dynamics and how decisions are made. 
is something that I think you really do only learn with some experience. So I think some of the, uh, although they are different, the, the, the different errors, I think the nature of the errors and the reason the errors were made in this term are very similar to my own uh, experience back in, in 2012. I mean, I often say that actually, um, you know, the, the early errors that, that I experienced um, definitely helped form my response and relationship with politics afterwards. The, the one that I can often give is um, the first budget. We sought to remove mortgage interest relief. Um, there was no dialogue there was no warning there was it was out it was out of a clear blue sky for the rest of the political class and for the public um and understandably now uh, i understand it met with a wall of opposition um and as a result we were forced to to climb down and approach the, the the matter in a different way and of course subsequently by approaching it in a different way we got the same result um but but we did it through engagement and and the need to win people around to the argument, um, which I, I simply hadn't. Again, may sound incredibly naive, but did, didn't have an understanding that that was necessary. So I think that early experience, which um, again at the time I was counselled against it, um, and I thought I could ignore that advice, um, and I've learned from experience that it was it was the wrong thing to do. So. That did shape how I subsequently have approached politics afterwards. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that's not doesn't give an entirely clear answer to your question, um, but I think uh, um, uh, sort of a, approaching the backbenches after a couple of terms undoubtedly has given me a different experience, which is 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 of of, of interest and use, I think. So that, that's the past. Um, looking ahead to the future, the, the states are back in session, as it were, uh, this week. And one of the items to be debated is um, some fairly routine changes to rules and arrangements concerning the uh, 2025 general election. But you are taking that opportunity to lay an amendment, uh, somewhat ironically, given what we've just been talking about, seconded by uh, Deputy Peter Furbrush, former PNR president. Um just explain to us, if you can, in summary form, what you're trying to achieve with that amendment. I, I should first start saying, you say somewhat ironically, actually, it's quite deliberately. You know, I approached um, Peter uh, pretty soon after he was removed to say, you know, I think we need to have a conversation, work out what we can do together in the next 18 months. Because, as I said, I think fundamentally there are things that we can agree on and work together. So, you know, I, I, I took the view that this would be an area where we could perhaps find some common ground, and, and, and I think there will be others. And, and so you may yet see more of this, and, and it won't be an irony, it will be deliberate. Um, but to deal with the question, I think the starting point is the Scrutiny Management Committee have gone to quite a lot of work, 18 months or so, of engagement with the public, um, a questionnaire that was completed by many people taking uh, public evidence, uh, in hearings, and they've produced a very good report. And in that report, the observation really is that there is a will for island-wide voting, still a will for island-wide voting. There isn't any cl clarity about um, uh, or any settled view that this should be an alternative. But yet there is some clear, clear conflict between how you achieve some of the objectives, namely the, the, the challenge of having so many candidates and so many votes and how the electorate get to know um, all of those candidates and can make an informed choice is a very real one. Um, 
But if you still want to retain the island-wide vote, uh, you can't solve that problem by, for example, moving back to districts and re therefore reducing the number of candidates and votes. So I think that analysis is a, very, is, is, is a very worthwhile piece of work which has been undertaken by scrutiny, and I think it risks being sat on the shelf. Uh, there's no other move to, um, to to consider its recommendations. So the amendment is in two parts. It in, seeks to introduce two new propositions uh, to the state. One is to direct the State Assembly and Constitution Committee to consider the recommendations in that report and to come back to the states in June this year um, with uh, propositions, if they wish, um, for the states to act on um, on the recommendations ultimately that originated from scrutiny. The second proposition is uh, a matter which scrutiny considered, but they didn't actually make a recommendation on. And in their report, they said, well, possibly one way in which you could reduce the number of candidates is to have a system of rolling elections. So the closest um, analogy probably is the US Senate, which is uh, where senators are elected for a six-year term, um, but a, and a third of them are replaced or elected every two years. Um, and in essence, that that is the system which which was discussed in the scrutiny report. Now, I don't know whether that's the right answer or not, um, but I think it is worth some time being spent to consider whether a form of rolling election, it could be you elect half the states every two years, for example, um, whether it has any merit at all. Um, and I think you could also, an issue which wasn't addressed in the scrutiny report that I'm conscious of from my political experience, is you have the, the, the general elections in Guernsey create an expectation of significant change in the same way as people look at a UK election and think, okay, we're going to replace one government with another government. It's all going to be very different. And it, the system just doesn't really work like that in Guernsey, not least because you haven't got one party replacing another with a completely different political manifesto. And you've also got a lot of work that's already in train. Um, so there's... Our system creates almost a mismatch between public expectation and reality. So every election, there's a sense of new beginning. And quite quickly, that falls away as people realise, actually, they've got to grind through the work that the previous state was, was, was um, working on. <clears throat> and if you think back to where the states used to work, up until, I guess, the end of uh, the 1990s or so, um, in in effect, there was almost a system of rolling elections where um, there was three year terms and and committees were um, uh, there was a process of renewal. So there was some continuity and some replacement, and, and there may be some advantage in that in our system that that is worth re-examining. So the amendment does not propose to change the electoral system for June twenty twenty five, but it proposes that we go away and look at it at PDQ with a view to um, uh, if there are uh, any suggestions, then they need to come back by June this year. Otherwise, there simply won't be time to make any changes for the election next year. So it's, it's a period of rapid review is really what the amendment seeks so to do. So in practice, then, if, if the system adopted was a third of the states elected every two years, I think what would happen is in the next general election in 2025 would be held on the same basis as the election in 2020. All candidates up, or all seats up at one election, 100 candidates or however many there will be. And uh, if there are still 38 
seats, then 38 candidates would be elected. And a third of them would come up for re-election in 2027, another third in 2029, and another third in 2031. And after that, a third would, would come up every two years. That's essentially the way it would operate in practice, isn't it? Well, that is the way the scrutiny uh, um, had that, that was the system that the, that the scrutiny report described. So certainly, if the states were to adopt that in June, then the mechanism you describe is the, is the one that scrutiny envisaged. But I, I, I think it's a little premature to, to, to uh, jump to the conclusion that that is what is being proposed. Um, it, it was a page and a half in the scrutiny report. It's a good piece of analysis. More work needs to be done. So, But I think the important point at this stage is the states need to make a decision, is this an issue that is worth uh, looking at or simply ignore that particular part of the scrutiny report and, and, and move on? For me, I think, you know, island-wide voting to some extent is the sort of emperor's new clothes. You know, the, the reality is it, we had 118 candidates, 38 votes each. Most of us didn't use all 38 votes. Most of us didn't really know you know, couldn't possibly know really who we were voting for and how each of those votes was going to interact with any of the other votes we were using. And and we're going to have that problem again in, <clears throat> excuse me, in June 2025. Um, we've got a, a uh, but the reason that it's the Empress New Clothes and nobody really wants to talk about it, I think is partly because it was adopted by a referendum and therefore the people have made the choice and therefore, uh, you know, it, a little bit like Brexit, it's not for the politicians to question that decision. But I actually think it is responsible, the responsibility of the Assembly just to take a step back and say, is this really working and operating as people would hope and expect? And if not, should we be tweaking it in some way? Should we be trying to improve it to enable people to have a better choice? Should we be amending it at all without another referendum? Well, again, that I think is a is a matter for the State Assembly and Constitution Committee to consider. You know, it, 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 is it a sacrosanct, and therefore a referendum needs to be held, or is it something that the Assembly can do um, because it is actually preserving island-wide voting? It's a very valid question to ask. I'm not seeking to answer it today. I'm not seeking for the states to answer it later this week, but it is a valid question. You've been a critic of island-wide voting. In fact, I think you may have been the the, the, the only deputy, the, the very final vote, um, who who voted against the, 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 the implementation of it in 2020. So you're an unlikely saviour of island-wide voting in a way. Why not just propose scrapping it and either going back to the, the old district system or at least... Uh, you know, slightly larger, fewer districts, but nevertheless, to a, to the kind of system where there is a, a more familiar number of candidates and a more familiar number of seats. I think the the practical uh, uh, politics, as we all know, is the art of the possible. I think the practical reality, in my view, is that states are never going to make that decision. Or this states are never going to make that decision at this stage of this term. They're not going to revert to the district system. They're not going to revert to super districts or, or adopt super districts. So uh, if that is the right evolution for us, now is not the moment to make it. Um, but I do think I come back to the fact that somebody else has gone to quite a lot with the states, the public, through the states, through the Scrutiny Management Committee, have gone to quite a lot of trouble of looking at this issue. They've produced a report I think it is the responsibility of the states to spend some time thinking about it. That's what this amendment seeks to do, rather than just allowing that to sit on the shelf 
um, it's a problem for somebody else to worry about another day. Um, and that, in essence, is what's driven me to, to, to discuss this amendment with Deputy Fairbrush and bring it forward. Some critics will say it's navel-gazing. Do you actually think that changing to a system of, of rolling elections in, in principle could result in different outcomes from general elections? Um, the, the answer to that is I don't I don't really know. I don't think it is navel-gazing in the sense that there is nothing more fundamental in a democratic process than, or a democratic system of government than how you elect those who who, who seek to represent the public. So I think it, it's, I think, dismissive to simply say, well, if this is government um, uh, contemplating things that are of issue to itself, it doesn't matter to the people. It, ultimately, it really does matter to the people um, who is elected and who represents them. Will it make a change to those who choose to stand? I think the reality is, is that if we continue to have us, if we continue to crank the handle for a system where you have 118 candidates and people don't really know who they're voting for, you're likely to have two things. One is a reduction in voter participation. People will just become more apathetic and think they don't know what they're, they don't really know who to vote for. There's no point in participating, so they will cease to do so. That is dangerous in any democracy. And I think secondly is you will put candidates off who will see little point in putting themselves through the process. And you will then be left perhaps with people who are less and less suited to do the role, but are more and more likely to become elected by a smaller and smaller group of the electorate. Those are the, if you like, theoretical risks, which I think it is a responsibility of the states to consider and seek to manage by um, any changes which uh, that, that should be made. Also on the agenda at this week's states meeting is the government work plan. Uh, it's been on the agenda for month after month. It's been rolled over. There must be some uh, debate about how relevant it remains, because I think it was first lodged last summer or something, wasn't it? But uh, what could perhaps have been a slightly arid debate about it is going to be uh, a very vibrant debate in the end, because as we're reporting in today's Guernsey Press, there is um, an 11th hour amendment to it laid by the new president and vice president of the Policy and Resources Committee relating to education. And let's remind ourselves where the education debate was left before Christmas was the previous PNR had proposed borrowing to fund uh, a redevelopment programme concentrating on, on Les Osway uh, as a new post-16 campus, a, t- a total cost of 120 or 130 million for the, for the whole transformation programme. The states, although they were, they approved that policy stage, basically defunded it. So it looked as if that project wouldn't go ahead at all in this state's term. What Deputy Trott and Deputy Salisbury are saying is that they have now found uh, £88 million and that the further education part of that new facility at Liz Osway can go ahead, but not for the time being anyway, the sixth form element uh, of the post-16 campus. Uh, now, that that's a very brief um, summary, but are you surprised by by this latest move? Are you surprised that within four or five weeks of being elected, two members of the states who were opposed to that project going ahead, largely on budgetary grounds, I think, are now saying actually an £88 million project is affordable? Well, I think first thing, let's just go back to the opening comments about the government work plan. Um, 
bearing in mind under the state's rules originally it should have been debated last June and here we are uh, six, seven months later um, debating it after multiple delays. So I think you're right. I think its its value and purpose is uh, has to be questioned. And I think the reality is is the amendment that you've described actually hasn't got anything to do with the government work plan. It's been has been grafted on as the first opportunity um, to deal with this issue and to avo- it avoids the necessity of bringing a whole new policy letter, which will take weeks to prepare. Um, I'm not particularly surprised that the new committee have decided to try and resolve this matter. I think it is it, it has been a festering sore really throughout this political term. Um, and I think the, the, the two most recent debates, it clearly emerged in those that there was a great sense that of, of uh, almost a consensus view from those speaking in debates that something needed to be done about getting on with the Guernsey Institute, which had been so left behind for so many decades by so many successive states. So I think trying to find a way to enable that was no, I don't think it was any great surprise. Now, uh, whether there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors around the funding, um, I, I think will be a matter for discussion and, and, and debate. Um, and uh, But I think the objective from Deputy Trot when he stood, I think he did express a view that he would you know, be seeking to try and find a solution. Um, and in, inevitably, it requires some kind of compromise. Um, and, and, and given that uh, the, the previous uh, attempts to compromise on this simply seem to be pre- representing the same package, um, that was never going to work a third time. So uh, I think this, by decoupling the building of the Institute from the Sick Form Centre um, in financial terms, uh, does perhaps help move the project, at least for the Guernsey Institute, forward. But of course, still leaves the uh, education, sport and cultures model um, to be completed. And, and that, of course, is, is is overtly clear from the purpose of the amendment. Yeah, let's return to that in a moment. But the politics of it are interesting. I mean, Deputy Furbrush and, and his uh, colleagues, the former members of the Policy and Resources Committee, are probably going to be looking at this and saying, hold on, there, there was so much controversy and opposition to our capital funding programme uh, that it was meant to be unaffordable and reckless and irresponsible. And yet the new Policy and Resources Committee can shave, what, 20 million or something like that off one of the projects. And suddenly members who were so opposed, so trenchantly opposed to our programme for, for throughout 2023 are lining up to support this new scheme. I mean, it, 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 it looks a little bit as if it was the wrong people proposing it last time, doesn't it? Well, again, I think, I think to some extent the previous committee, uh, again, were authors of their own misfortune in that they had, um, if we if we wind back, of course, the, it was the th- arguably the third iteration of the uh, goods and services tax debate, and the second iteration, the first was eventually morphed, morphed, morphed into a uh, green paper. The second in uh, January, February last year was presented as being driven by the demographic changes that were uh, the island was faced with. And then suddenly um, that all fell away and it was, well, we need this in order to fund our capital programme. So I think the, the, the um, mixing of the 
tax review, its purpose and and the proposed solutions with the capital program um, ultimately not only undermined the credibility of the committee, which which ultimately led to its its demise, but I think also undermined the whole capital program anyway, and confidence in the numbers and, and everything else. So no, I think whilst they may no doubt say exactly what you've said, I think the rest of the states will not necessarily see it that way because they were never judging it through the same uh, lens in any event. So uh, the amendment, if it is approved, and I, I, I mean, I assume there is quite a high prospect, um, quite a good prospect of, of this amendment being approved, um, would deliver on on the uh, the Guernsey Institute facilities very largely, although some of the sports facilities have, have, have been omitted from this later scheme. Hmm. But doesn't really do anything to move forward the sixth form centre, does it? I mean, there is a, a, an option t- to put a million pounds worth of foundations in, um, but then the amendment doesn't include anything um, about what might happen in future states with regard to the, the sixth form centre. So I'm assuming that if the amendment goes through, ESC moves the sixth form to Lamar de Cartre still where it remains indefinitely i mean is, is that your reading of it and if it is what's your view of that well the amendment as you said is silent on the sixth form center and as you've said the committee for education Sport and culture have already said they're going to move it um now of course initially it was for one year and then it was for two um but in the absence of a plan um because the, the plan has consciously been taken off the table by this amendment uh, for the building of the sixth form centre, then I have a very real concern that that two years will become certainly five and perhaps ten or more. Um, and the states have a very long track record of postponements becoming almost interminable, um, as indeed the Guernsey Institute themselves have found, ironically perhaps, um, that, that they've been much postponed and it's, it, they've lived in facilities well beyond their, their sell-by date. And of course, you know, 10 years ago, Lamar, we were told, was on the verge of, of falling down. And here we are 10 years later proposing to put the sick form there for what could become an indeterminate period. So I think it is, I think that is a, a, a concern, but it's not going to be addressed through through this amendment. Um, and I perhaps think- suggest that the debate is, is not over in the sense that even if the amendment is successful, ESC still has some work to do to to persuade some colleagues that, that moving the sixth form to Lamar for however long it is, is is a good idea. Well, I think the committee will take the view that the decision that's been made is well in train um, in terms of the, re- the, the reallocation of staff and will be going ahead, I think, in September uh, 2025. But I think the, I mean, the other observation I would make, of course, is I think uh, 2025 is the peak of our population numbers um, for secondary education, after which we go into into a, uh, in an, an expected decline in the numbers because of the birth, birth rate over the previous decade or so. Um, so, I, you know, I think that, again, changes the perspective on well, wh- what are we doing and why are we doing it? Um, and that, I don't think, has really been, has been addressed. Uh, in any of the proposals up to this point, as this project keeps getting pushed back further and further, because um, it is now so far behind its original programme. Um, so I think there are some legitimate questions and challenges. Um, and If you were the PNR president, 
you would have wanted to produce um, a package which which dealt with the short and medium and long-term future of the sixth form centre, wouldn't you? It, whereas this one, and maybe this is pragmatic and prudent, but in principle terms, th this amendment leaves that hanging. I don't think there's any point in speculating what I uh, might have wanted had I been PNR president. I'm not PNR president. I'm, I'm not burdened with that responsibility or those decisions. Uh, all I can do, uh, as I said, really sitting in my backbench scrutiny role is perhaps point out some of the more obvious questions and challenges to be asked um, around the implementation and delivery of what is extant, uh, current um, education policy in relation to the future of secondary and post-16 education. Um, but it, uh, I, uh, that is one of the advantages of, of not having a senior decision-making role. You, you don't have to uh, deal with the responsibility of, of the implications of, of, of some of the issues. But it is my responsibility to point out some of the obvious questions. Finally on this, uh, an interesting element in, in this amendment is that deputies Trott and Salisbury argue that it's become possible to fund this project, partly, perhaps very largely, because of uh, an estimated increase, or an increase in the estimate, I should say, um, of uh, income from co company tax reforms, which are more or less forced on us internationally, from 10 million a year of additional receipts to 30 million a year. Now, um, I'm interested in whether that surprises you and whether my uh, layperson's assessment that Deputy Charles Parkinson's forecast um, is going to prove correct is right, that, that there is actually more headroom for us in terms of company tax, uh, and it could even go beyond the 30 million that PNR is now speculating about. Yeah, I think uh, PNR clearly have not shown their workings yet, so we don't know how they've arrived at the number they've arrived at. However, in a, in in a general sense, it doesn't particularly surprise me because, of course, Deputy Salisbury, myself, and Deputy Kazan Saver Miller were arguing n not dissimilar making similar points when presenting the Fair Alternative Amendment to the tax strategy um, pretty well a year ago today. Um, so I think there was always an expectation that it felt like the other revenues were being, um, uh, the, 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 they were, the predictions were uh, on the downside because that helped build the case for a goods and services tax. Now, um, whether the previous policy and resources committee would uh, would agree with that, I've no idea. Um, to what extent, again, they were relying on the advice that they were given from their advisors. Again, would be something that you know we may never know. But of course, again, to some extent, this links back to your opening comment and observation that, of course, there is quite a lot of overlap between the old committee and the new committee. So there will be some members who can see both sides of this particular argument and can see what has moved and therefore be in a better position than I am to to comment on um, the validity of that move and it, its authenticity in terms of it, the ability to deliver those numbers. But I think the, the, the generic point um, that there was more revenue to be made from other sources is one that I, I do recognise because that very much underpinned the argument that I've been making certainly for the last 12 months. 
It's certainly fortuitous for Deputy Trot, isn't it? Five weeks after he arrives as PNR president, an extra twenty million pounds a year potentially is is available to be spent. Um, which is, isn't there an old saying about being born lucky rather than talented? Uh, and perhaps that applies to him. It doesn't apply, though, to um, Christina Moore in Jersey. And this is the, the last point I want to um, to ask you about, Deputy St-Pierre, because um, you will know her. You know the Jersey political scene quite well. In fact, you you have a column, don't you, uh, in the Jersey Evening Post. Um, Channel Island's politics seems to be in quite a, a febrile state at the moment, just a few weeks after uh, our states removes its senior committee, um, she loses a vote of no confidence as chief minister in Jersey. I mean, and she'd only served in that position for 18 months. Um, did that surprise you that, that that her tenure lasted such a short period of time? And, and what do you make of the state of Jersey politics vis-a-vis Guernsey politics at the moment? Yes, although, as you say, I do have a, a, a regular column in the JP, I'm always a little bit nervous about commenting in detail on on the nature of Jersey politics because I am I'm not following it clearly as closely as I'm following Guernsey politics. Um, the uh, I mean, Jersey has had more of a tradition of motions and no confidence in its senior team. Of course, the last was indeed led by Deputy Moore herself in Deputy Lafondre in the last term, which which in fact did not succeed. So uh, whilst this may have been our first motion of confidence here in Guernsey to remove the senior committee, um, the attempts have been there in, in Jersey in the past. I think my, my observation, you know, rather than getting into the personalities and, and reasons for it, because I'm probably not in the best place to do that, is to note that despite the apparent differences between our systems of government, Namely, um, Jersey is often presented as being a ministerial system uh, with a chief minister who nominates his or her council of ministers then approved by the states and they, those individuals have more executive authority than our presidents of committees. Nonetheless, the practical politics does not seem to be terribly dissimilar to uh, to our own. And we've seen that, of course, the the analogy between the um, the significant delays and um, going round the, the roundabout on, on decision making for schools here in Guernsey is mirrored by, of course, their, their indecision in relation to their hospital redevelopment. So there's it, it just an interesting parallel, and and of course one also observes that in Jersey there are calls for more consensus. Um, government, which is uh, the, the return to a committee system. At the same time, whilst in Guernsey, we we have the, the, the debate about whether we ought to have more executive authority in ministerial system. Um, so, and, and similarly, of course, we've we've moved f- uh, from uh, from a district system of election to an island-wide system. Whilst in many ways they've gone the other way, having abolished their island-wide senators in favour of of. Um, district uh, deputies. So we do seem to sort of mirror and follow each other and track each other. Uh, and despite the, the the apparent differences in our um, electoral and, and systems of electoral systems and systems of government, the outcomes don't seem to be terribly different. I don't know what that tells us about um, Jersey and Guernsey politics, but it's an interesting observation. Um, and so I think the whoever succeeds Deputy Moore uh, will no doubt have faced very similar challenges to the ones which Deputy Trot faces having succeeded Deputy Fairbrush. 
perhaps it tells us that that change or something different is always appealing and and maybe particularly in in this era um uh, and you know that there is there another parallel perhaps between the islands but anyway machinery of government debate is expected i think still later this year in guernsey so there will be an opportunity for us to um consider that in the months ahead but for now a deputy saint pierre thank you very much for joining us thank you very much that was deputy gavin saint pierre we'll be following him and the 39 other states members on every twist and turn of local politics this year starting with this week's meeting of course so join us here for the shorthand states at the end of each day's debate and keep buying the press for full coverage daily.